Titus chapter 2. Let us attend to the word of Almighty God. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. The grass withers, the flower fades, this word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. And Father, we do long, each one of us, to be those who live in such a manner that your word is not blasphemed, that we might adorn the doctrine of your word, of you, our, our Savior, in all of life. Father, we confess that we are far from doing this perfectly. So we ask that even this, this morning, you would bless us with this, your word, and with the preaching of it, so that we might grow for the glory of your name. Equip us, Father, for every good work, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the pastor of uh, the, the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, said that the glory of the gospel is when the church is absolutely different from the world. She invariably will attract it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Do you catch that? The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, the world will invariably be attracted. Now, he's not using the word attracted as in fall in love with. Attracting the attention of the world. In our, what I've been calling our Cretan American culture, our church in America, we, we have a different thought pattern. That if we are just as much like the world as we can be, the world may put up with us for a while. It might not notice us and then we can just keep doing our thing. Isn't that the goal? 
Just don't attract the world's attention with hatred. And and the gospel will be okay. But I I think Martin Lloyd-Jones was right to warn against that. It's when the church is utterly different from the world that it stands out like a sore thumb that the world has to take notice of the church. That's when the glory of the gospel is really seen. That's what we've been seeing in Titus. We've been seeing this this church in Crete. And Paul is saying of the church in Crete, you're not standing out. All Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Yeah, that's true of you. Can you imagine getting that letter from an apostle? That's true of you. They're not standing out. Is the Cretan culture then glorying in the gospel? Because here's this church that's just not standing out, not being obnoxious or different. No. And so in the church, there are people who are not qualified for any good work because they look exactly like their culture. And the gospel is then blasphemed. The gospel is then not adorned, made beautiful. Don't you love those two phrases in what we just read? That's the same thing being said in a negative and a positive way. Don't blaspheme the gospel, the word of God, in how you live. How do we not blaspheme it? It's not by just not making anyone notice it. No, it's adorning it. It's living in a way that exalts the gospel, shows its beauty. What makes the gospel look beautiful? It's when it transforms our lives so that we, Cretan Americans, who were always liars, evil beasts, inhuman beasts, lazy gluttons, aren't anymore. And people start noticing. They may hate you for it. But remember, they hated Christ for it. And you're not greater than your master. Our goal ought to be to stand out. Not to be obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. But to adorn the gospel. And make the world take notice. That's what we've been looking at. We looked at it with older men. Not old men. Older men. Paul's very nice there, isn't he? Older men, older women, younger women. And now we look at it with younger men, young men. And I'll just acknowledge up front, I'm going to squeeze the servants or the slaves, whichever translation you have there. I'm going to just squeeze them in with the young men this morning. I know that there were women in the, in the slave-servant category, And I know that there were old people in the slave and the servant category, but we're just going to squeeze them in with the young men this morning for the sake of this sermon. Last week, we were looking at the, the, the younger women. What were they to be taught? The older women were to teach them by word and example, and they were to teach them that kingdom character and kingdom priorities and kingdom authority are all very distinct. From how the world lives. So these young women were to have a kingdom character, a kingdom authority, and a kingdom priority. 
And we're going to use those same three categories this morning for the young men. Kingdom character. Now, for the young men, we're given one character trait in our text. They are to be taught to be of sound mind. Or verse 6 in the New King James, sober-minded. I like sound mind better. Because literally in the Greek, it's the word that in classical Greek literature was used when you were questioning whether someone was sane. Uh, are they of sound mind? That, we still talk it that way, don't we? Are they of sound mind? Uh, this, this will can be contested if you can claim that the person made it when he was not of sound mind, right? He'd lost his mind. Can't be trusted anymore. So, so the, the language here is, is this person of sound mind? Now, Paul isn't merely saying, young men, don't be insane. But a number of young men probably could use that warning in our culture and in the church. Don't act crazy. Uh, but, but there's a bit more to it. This idea of being of sound mind brings with it the idea of uh, reasonableness. Right? How do you know if someone has lost their mind? Have they lost their reason or their sensibleness, their seriousness? These are all other ways you you might translate it. Serious, sensible, and reasonable. And so the young men in the church in Crete needed to be taught to have a character that was sober-minded, sound-minded. Why? Because they weren't living that way. Because the Cretan culture had a lot of immature, foolish, and unreasonable young men. And the church wasn't looking any different. And maybe the church still doesn't look all that different. You know, that's not a unique thing to Crete. In fact, John Calvin, talking about this, talks about young men. He, He says, young men in his day are like pots that start to boil over and bubble over. You can't control it, can you? It's too hot to touch and pull off the stove or away from the fire. You, you can't control where the stuff's going to pop out of next. It's just bubbling over and uh, not, not good. And I, I think from Paul to Calvin to us, things haven't necessarily changed. Too many, too many young men, even in the church, lack a serious, wise, reasonable mindset towards life. Instead, they stumble around, even if they don't drink, they stumble around like a drunk person. Too often led by lusts and passions, by fleeting whims, by entertainment, by whatever, instead of by sound and mature wisdom. Of course, this is true for all young people. But maybe, maybe young men are less mature sometimes. And so the word of God targets them with this thought. But it should be noted this, that although this is a distinct word characterizing the young men in Titus 2, linguistically it's linked to what is said to every other group. When we read that the older men are to be sober, it's not the same word, but it's a related word in the Greek. 
Same root word. When the older women are told to not be uh, slaves of much wine, it's not the same word, but it's a related idea that they not be controlled by something from without and, uh, or, or something taken in, uh, maybe is a better way to put that. And then the young women are also to be sober. Again, not the same word, but all the Christians in Crete, in one way or another, were failing to have self-control. I bet someone here is holding a translation that actually translates this word this way, self-controlled. Because that's the basic idea. Young Christian men, unlike those passion-driven young men of the world, are to be those who are controlled by something else. We'll say self-controlled, but then we need to explain Band on that a bit. So kingdom character is that of being sound of mind. Secondly, kingdom authority. Um, this, is, this, is why, this is why what follows is so important. If young Christian men are to be sound of mind, they need to be controlled not by lusts and passions, but by something else. What will their authority be? What authority holds sway in their life? Titus is told what authority to teach them. Where the worldly culture seeks to present a public opinion as their authority, right? Well, this is, this is the popular thing to believe in our culture. And you'll be canceled if you don't believe this and act this way in our culture. Or... or um, Controlled, well, well, a number of, of things could go there, right? Controlled by one's own self-aggrandizement uh, or the desire for promotion. That can be an all-controlling thing, right? Getting ahead. Popularity. Or it can just be pleasure, living for the weekend. But instead, Titus is to show them setting up a pattern for them of what a kingdom authority should look like. And the text tells us that the authority over the young men of the church ought to be the doctrine of the word of God. Titus is to set a pattern for the young men of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound in speech that cannot be condemned. Now, I, I, I found uh, one or two people who suggested that what's going on here is just more character traits. That the young men need to be uh, those who, in whatever their calling is, they show integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. And Titus, yours has set the example. So Titus, since your calling is doctrine as a pastor, you show what that looks like in, in the doctrinal realm. And then that will set the pattern for them to go out, a farmer to go out and be uh, a, a, a man of integrity in, in his agricultural and trade work. Uh, a carpenter, same thing in his working in a house or, or whatever the thing might be. And of course that's true. Every one of us should show integrity and reverence and incorruptibility in whatever our calling might be, whatever your calling is. But that's not specifically what's being said here. 
What's being said here is specifically with regard to doctrine, young men should have a reverence for the word of God. Young men should have an incorruptibility with the word of God. Young men should have an integrity with the word of God. All the rest of you too. You're, you're not let off if you're an older man or a, a woman. You're not. That's not the point. The point is that the younger men need especially to be told this because they are the most guilty of ignoring it in the church of Crete. Whether you think that's true in the church in America, I'll leave that to you to decide. But in the church of Crete, the young men were most guilty for not treating the word of God with reverence and integrity and incorruptibility. And so they are to be taught to be so. Integrity in how we use the word. How we use the word. I don't even like that sentence, how we use the word. But you know what I mean by that, right? As we talk about the word, are we showing integrity? What, what does that look like? Well, I think sometimes with uh, young men especially, as they start digging into the word, asking questions about what they believe as they uh, grow to, uh, to be young adults, uh, um, there can be a lack of integrity. Uh, you, might, you might start playing the devil's advocate and, and might just think you're being funny by playing the devil's advocate and asking these questions or joking around. You think you, maybe you're being a little funny, but you're not showing an integrity with the word of God. You're, you're treating it lightly. There's no reverence there. We're not treating the word of God with integrity. Let me throw a number of things out there. We're not treating it with integrity if we pick one theme in the Bible and rewrite everything else in the Bible to fit that one doctrinal theme that we think is the only one that matters. That's not taking the word of God with integrity. Do, do people do that? Old, young, men, women. Yeah, we do that. We pick the thing that we think is most important. And it might be an important theme, right? One thing that you see often in the church today, uh, the, the theme of uh, how God views the poor. But then you rewrite the gospel to be all about physical poverty. Is physical poverty an important subject in scripture? It is. But it's not the center of the gospel itself. It's a, how we treat poverty or respond to it or care for those who are in need should be a result of the gospel in our lives. But it isn't the gospel itself. It's not integrity when we blow that out of proportion. Or, or when we take something like eschatology, end times, and we make the whole Bible about that one theme. Or, or take one book of the Bible and make that the one book of the Bible and everything else has to be written around that one book of the Bible. This is not taking the word of God with integrity. Uh, cherry-picking verses is not using the Word of God with integrity. Here's what I want to say. Uh, I'm going to just look up 30 verses that have that word in it. I'll just throw them together in a, in a train of thought. They may not actually actually apply to what I'm saying, but I'm just going to prove that I have 30 proof texts. Look at me. One of the things I find interesting is when I look at confessional statements like Westminster 
or the Belgic Confession. When we print them today, sometimes a denomination will put proof texts underneath. Uh, some of them are original to when it was written. Some are added later. And not always do they all fit the point if you do the work. I found that in copies of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Footnote, proof text. I read the proof text. I read the chapter and I say, that's not what that chapter is about. We have to be careful that we use the word of God with integrity as what it is. The very word of God. That we approach it with reverence because of what it is. The very word of God. And when we have integrity and reverence for the word of God. We'll have an incorruptibility with the word as well, won't we? Not that we'll be perfect in our understanding of everything in it. But we won't be easily led astray by corruption of the word. That, that takes energy and it takes effort. And sometimes young men want a quick answer and are, are too passionate and want to move too quickly that they don't want to spend time studying to see what God is saying. I, I early on, because I'm such a short, brief preacher, but... When I, when I preach, uh, early on, I had someone come up to me and make this comment. If it's not, if you can't say it in 20 minutes, it's not worth saying. Now, if the same older, older, older man in the congregation I was a part of at that point had come up and just said, Nathan, I really got to go to the bathroom. Can't you try a little harder to be done by... 6 p.m. Uh, in the evening service, uh, I, I might have listened a little better. But it was that idea of, if you can't say it in 20 minutes, it's not worth saying. And all I could think of was, someone didn't inform David. Because Psalm 119 can't be read in 20 minutes out loud. Someone forgot to inform Jesus. Because the Sermon on the Mount is longer than 20 minutes to read out loud. Brief is not always better. Sometimes that doesn't make longer always better either. I, I do know that. I do. Longer is not always better either. But sometimes when we're young, we, we just have that. We want the, the tagline that will answer the question. And, and you know, that's how a lot of false teachers are so successful. Instead of saying, what does God's word teach? Let's dig in. Let's study the issue. They say, I have this fancy slogan. Oh, that's such a great slogan. And the young especially are at times drawn to that kind of thing. He's got the best slogan. He's more charismatic than this older guy who speaks longer. Slogans can be useful. But not if... They're treating the word of God cheaply and not actually listening to what it says. And so young men are to have this incorruptibility so that they won't be led astray by false teachers. Being sound of mind is the character of the kingdom young man. 
And it's to be the character of that young man because he has a reverence and awe, a a love for the word of God that makes him incorruptible with it because he treats it as the word of God. Think of the Berean Christians. Paul came to them and he preached. He preached Christ as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. What did they do? They pulled out the Old Testament and they read it and they said, is Paul being reverent with the word? Is he being faithful with the word? Is there integrity in what he says? Is this what the word is saying? And only when Paul's preaching compared with scripture and was sound, did they embrace it? Young men need that kind of incorruptibility. They'll follow the word even if it means not following some fancy teacher. The way that Paul presents all of this in terms of Titus's character and treatment of the word here, I think it is, uh, is helpful to consider. I encourage you to go and read Titus chapter 1 again. And compare the things that are said about the false teachers with the things that are said about Titus in our passage. Brian Chappell, I think, beautifully summarizes this, so I'm just going to read his thought to you. Chappell writes, The false teachers are unfit for doing anything good, but by his example, Titus is to teach what is good. The false teachers deceive lie and reject the truth for dishonest gain. But Paul says to Titus, in your teaching, show integrity. The word integrity probably referring not only to the character of Titus, but also to his uncorrupted message. This is further contrast with the false teachers who with their polluted gospel are corrupted and to whom nothing is pure. The false teachers are mere talkers, uttering empty, senseless things. But Titus is to show seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. What the false teachers say and do causes them to deny God. But Titus's word and example should cause no one to deny the validity of his message or the character of those who deliver it, end quote. Do you see how Paul's doing this? Titus, you set an example for the young men that is the opposite, the antithesis of the false teachers. With the goal that in the church, every young man, not just the pastor. Well, we got our pastor, he studies doctrine, he knows all those things, and we'll just... We'll believe whatever he says. But every young man and all the rest of you are to study doctrine too. I I know you can't spend three years studying Greek and Hebrew like some of us lucky people. You, You don't get that master's degree in systematic theology in church history. But you can still study the word of God with integrity and honesty 
so that when you listen to someone who has the fancy title, Master of Divinity, worst name for a master's degree ever, my master's degree, Master of Divinity, I'm a pastor of the word. Master of the divine. Ridiculous. Anyway, when you hear someone with this fancy title, you still take it before the word of God and say, it's not that degree. It's not that learning that makes it right. It's the word of God or it's nothing. And every young man, imagine a church where a false teacher comes in, but every young man is so ingrained with reverence for the Word of God, integrity, and incorruptibility in the Word of God, that they are like Titus himself. Well, they would know what to do with the false teacher, wouldn't they? He'd find himself run out of town. He would stand out in the church and everyone would know it. You don't have to have a fancy degree for that. You have to have a reverence and awe for the word of God. That it is what it is. And the goal for the church is to be like that. Now, let me apply this in a specific way with young men. With, With young women, there was that special focus on the married young women. I tried to apply it to all of you women. Uh... But, but there was that focus on married young women. Although it doesn't say married men here, I think there might be a special emphasis for the married young men here. When we read in Timothy about what happened when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the Holy Spirit in the letter to Timothy suggests that Adam was standing there as the serpent deceived Eve. And the Holy Spirit says Adam wasn't deceived. That means he heard and he knew better. What should he have done? He should have grabbed the snake and threw it out of the garden. He had the dominion to do that, didn't he, from God? Should have taken that snake, got right out of there. We're not listening to you in this house. But he didn't. In Titus, we've read of false teachers coming into households to deceive. And in the parallel text in Timothy, they target certain women. Not all women are gullible, but certain women were being gullible. And so here, probably the Holy Spirit's especially saying to young husbands, you have a responsibility You women have the responsibility too. Don't be gullible. But then the husband has that special responsibility to back up and encourage the wife to not fall into this sin. To guard that household from error. It it saddens me that in our day, it doesn't sadden me about you women. It saddens me about young men in our day that in the church in America, I think far more women of all ages, have a very sound understanding and care for and reverence for reading and studying the word of God. And a lot of men are just lazy. 
Now, if that's true for you women, the first thing I want to say is, well done, keep it up. In church history, there have been these moments where um, some godly women pretended to know less than they did because they didn't want to embarrass their husband. That's ridiculous. Keep it up. There have been uh, women who were told by their husband, stop studying so much because the husband knew that he wasn't growing as fast as the wife and he had to be better or whatever. Sisters, keep up the good work. Keep up the good work and drive the men of the church to catch up. But, but men, if this is true of us, as it is with much, many men in the church in America, especially you husbands whose wives know more than you, we should be ashamed of our lack of studying the word of God. We, we should. And we should strive. We should not uh, belittle our wives for what they know. We should not make them uh, try to hide how much they know so our ego can feel better. We shouldn't instead seek that God would use our wives and the women of the church in general as tools to sanctify us, to make us strive harder, to grow faster, and to grow with them. We should strive to catch up so that like these young men in Crete who apparently needed to be told something that the women didn't need to be told to handle the word of God with reverence. We need to handle the word of God with reverence. Well, then there's a result. A result uh, is that those who take the doctrine of God's word seriously and handle it rightly will also find that they have their priorities set right in all of life. Their priorities are set right in all of life. And I think we see this in terms of kingdom priorities in this section 8 through 10, which, which ends by saying to the servants, or it could be translated slaves, that they are to so live and work, their kingdom priority is to be set so clear that they are to adorn the gospel of God, our Savior, in all things. What is the priority of your life? What is to be the priority of our lives? To get ahead? I think I already used the example of living for the weekend or... Living for pleasure or living for pride, living for achievements. These servants and slaves are being told their priority is to adorn the gospel, make it look good. What would be another way of saying that? That their kingdom priority is to be to glorify God and enjoy him. That's the kingdom priority. Now, when we respect the word of God and hold high the doctrine of God, our Savior, our priority falls into place to glorify him and how we live and how we work and how we act. The slaves and the servants were to act in such a way toward sinful masters. 
No matter how good their master was, their master's a sinner, right? They, they are to so work for a sinful master that they honor God in a manner that expresses the lordship of Christ despite the sinful superior. And this shouldn't be a surprise to any of you. None of you is a slave. None of you is even a servant in the sense that this verse is talking about. So what's your excuse? What, what's our excuse for bad-mouthing our employer who isn't a slave driver, even if we use that phrase? Not in the same way that these slaves are being told to honor and work diligently for their masters. You're not a slave. What's your excuse for taking the post-it notes that you're not supposed to take home or just barely putting in the minimum to not get fired. Instead, the kingdom priority of glorifying God in everything we do will lead to what Paul says to them. Showing all good fidelity so that it may adorn the gospel of God in all things. Working in a way that isn't just the minimum to not get fired, but actually brings pleasure to your employer or children to your parents. That only happens when we're working for God and not for ourselves. And that's what we are to focus upon. Over the past three sermons uh, in this series, we've considered kingdom cultural Christianity, the real religion of Christ. Uh, without living in a countercultural way, this text is telling us we cannot claim to live truly in submission to the lordship of King Jesus. And if we deny his reign, we give up all right to claim him as savior. That's why I had us back up slightly more in the New Testament reading from Philippians 2. (coughs) Philippians 2, talking about Christ our Savior. What he did to save. And then there's that important word, therefore. (coughs) The therefore, the result of his saving work. What's the therefore? God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. You see, if we, if we look at Christ as our Savior, but then live as if he's not our Lord, we're denying the necessary therefore from that text, that Christ does have lordship over how you live. And he calls you to countercultural living. Some of the things in this passage, especially last week for you, you sisters, are hard things. But Christ has the lordship and calls on us to take his word seriously here. So let me wrap up this section on Titus 2, 1 through 10 with uh, this challenge from Douglas Sean O'Donnell. He challenges us, how do we win the world to Christ? We win the world by being different from it. By rejoicing in suffering, because 
we live not for this world, but for the one to come. By flavoring the godless, drab philosophies and moralities with the saltiness of the gospel. And by showing the oftentimes irresistible light of our lives, our good works that grow from the implanted word. We win the world by being unworldly. That's what Titus is being told. And that is what he is to set as sound doctrine before the church of Crete. Beloved, it's true for us today. Let's pray.